Boom. And we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. My name is Mike Winter, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando coming to you live from the beautiful Smith River Recreation Area in the great state of Jefferson, where freedom still reigns supreme, at least in our neck of the woods. Um, and uh, we're so happy to be here. It's uh, been a gorgeous summer so far as we just celebrated summer solstice and the farm's kicking and life couldn't be better, really, considering everything that's going on in this crazy world that we live in. Today, we have a very exciting guest, someone who is out in it, doing it uh, in, the thick of the, in the thick of it all, and somebody we can't wait to hear from. Uh, a couple points of business real quick. Uh, Music and Sky is right around the corner. Our Freedom Gathering, our Fourth July Freedom Gathering, 500 campers coming together uh, in Calaveras County. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful event. We're about sold out. If you're interested to know more about this, if you're just learning about this, uh, you can find out more at musicandsky.com. Uh, we cannot wait for that. It's right around the corner. Super excited. Uh, and uh, yeah, just everything else you can uh, find out about uh, us at alphavedic.com. It's A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C.com. Uh, Bear is coming out on a new Crow 777 uh, episode in uh, I think the coming week or so. So look out for that. And uh, yeah, lots going on. So uh, just stay up to speed on our Telegram. That's uh, t.me forward slash alphavedic. That is really the uh, best place to uh, stay up to date with everything we're doing. That or Discord, alphavedic.com forward slash Discord. Today we have adventurer, filmmaker, community activist, and former city mayor, Renette Sinem, today on uh, to speak on the right for self-determination amidst today's climate of government oppression. Renette Sinem is an adventurer, storyteller, filmmaker, writer, community activist, and former city council member and mayor. Uh, her activism as a freedom advocate has more recently gained her acclaim, but she has always walked a unique path. As a 27-year-old self-made adventurer in 1994, she battled sub-freezing temperatures, exhaustion, and the vast loneliness of the Alaskan wild, traveling over 1,500 miles, hauling a sled weighing 160 pounds with her rescued sled dog. <laughs> as the mayor of Nevada City, California, Renette rose to her oath of office to oppose Governor Newsom's statewide mandate to wear masks by correctly asserting the order could not be enforced. Quote, as you go about your day-to-day, -day, no, there is no law that orders you to wear a mask. Our governor does not have that unilateral power to make such orders. Ask our local police chief or officers. They will not and cannot cite anybody for not wearing a mask because the law does not exist. Quote, Renette's bold response predictably drew the ire of the political class, prompting her resignation from the city council. Renette stated, these lockdowns and what I would call house arrests of a healthy public are draconian and are doing massive destruction upon our local economy and the overall well-being of our community. And when I would say that as an elected official, I got the wrath of God. So I'm going to say it as a private and free citizen. Here, here, we could not agree more. We've been shouting this from the rooftops since this whole shenanigan started and before warning people about the impending farm, pharmaceutical uh, mandated adult vaccine agenda, which has been on the books for decades. Renette, so nice to have you here. Dr. Berlando as well. How are you today, doctor? Doing phenomenal. Uh, Renette, 
So glad to have you here. Lot to talk about. If uh, if you guys don't mind, I just take a, a moment, uh, start this off a little bit more solemn. You know, a friend of ours, friend of Alpha Cast here, John McAfee, was uh, recently suicided, and uh, he was a good friend, and uh, he gave us a favorite status to interview him whenever we cared because he really liked what we were doing here, and we had a lot in rapport. And he was a really fun gentleman. You know, he was with the phony Bill Gates of the world uh, hoped to be, you know, uh, he was a real deal. He was a true tech genius. He was a maverick. He was a libertarian, ran for president twice under the libertarian banner. So, uh, John, my friend, uh, we will miss you. You were one of the good ones. And I know you'll be working behind the scenes here. And you inspired a lot of us. So, um, yeah. He knew uh, that they were going to get him, and he announced that he would never commit suicide. And of course, within hours, last time we talked to him, he was just uh, right before they uh, put him in a Spanish prison. And then just hours uh, before the U.S. was about to extradite him, they they pulled the plug on his life. So, you know, this is the sort of thing, uh, you know, that really needs to stop. I've seen uh, personal friends uh and a similar fate. And, you know, we've talked about it on this platform. So, uh, you know, I'm over it and it's time to change our world for the better, which is a perfect segue to get into our guest who is uh, just a phenomenal, courageous, you know, one of those true heroes on the planet in my book. Uh, Renette, thanks for making time for us. Now, um, you know, we could jump right into uh, a lot of your activism and, and what you know, led you to this point, but maybe we could just digress a little bit and talk about your, uh, uh, you know, get a little insight into your persona uh, relative to your adventures out in the wilderness. And, and my question is, what would prompt you to tackle the Alaskan wilderness solo like you did? I mean, that's an amazing story. So if you wouldn't mind starting there. Sure. Well, thank you, Dr. Barr. It's a privilege to be on your show today. Uh, you just do really great work and you are a really wonderful and important platform for, for voices like mine to get out there because we know the censorship is absolutely unhinged right now. And um, the only people who, who ever censor are the ones who are on the wrong side of history. So it's lovely to be on the, on the right side with you. And so, yes, what prompted me um, to do these, these extreme uh, treks. So, well, I'll, I'll try to keep it as short as possible. Um, it was a series of events, um, but ultimately um, what did happen was after high school, my mother, my adoptive mother died. I was adopted at two months old. And, um, and her last words to me were, if you're ever gonna do anything, go do it now. And this is a woman who was gonna start her life in a year when she retired and she missed it. She missed her retirement. She missed living life by a year. So I went off traveling around the world got the adventure bug, um, came home, wanted more of it, found out there was a bunch of men and women training to go to the South Pole. They were taking team members and I was able to get on that team. And uh, and I was quite creative. You know, they were asking me questions, the applications, how long you've been skiing? I was like, well, 15 years. I was talking water skiing. They were talking cross country skiing. They're like, well, what's the coldest temperatures you've been exposed to? I'm like, well, I've been exposed to minus 10, which is good for California. I didn't tell them it was a walk-in freezer at the local grocery store where I used to bag ice where I worked. So I qualified on paper and I trained with them for 10 months and I had to raise a bunch of money. They went without me. I could not raise my $70,000. And then I actually put together an American women's trans Antarctic expedition out of, out of Snowbird in Utah. 
And after I got the top altar women on the team, I was about 23, 24 years old. They said, Renette, we've been doing this stuff for 15, 20 years. You're just starting. And they kicked me off the team and they went to the South Pole without me. So in good fashion, I was depressed and um, it took me a year to recover from that. And um, at the same time, I was doing a personal search because I started looking for my natural birth mother at the age of 11, actively looking for her, writing to research organizations. And now I was in almost in my mid twenties and I could not find my mother. I could not find my family. It's like they had disappeared. So I thought, you know what? You're never gonna find them obviously. So what you're gonna do is just go out there and find out what you're made of. So. I spun the globe around, looked at Siberia, I looked at Greenland, and um, I was like, Alaska, I'd already climbed um, McKinley by then, Mount Denali, and um, and I thought, go climb it, so I mean, go cross it, so I went up to, com to commercial fish in the Kodiak Island, um, and, and I thought if I wasn't tough enough to, to commercial fish, I wouldn't be tough enough to cross Alaska, so it was a litmus test. And so I went commercial fishing on a, a boat called the Big Valley, which I would see about 12, 15 years later actually sink on a show called The Deadliest Catch with along with my captain and another teammate, five men perished on that boat. Um, and after six months of commercial fishing, I was pretty much done with humanity because um, when I shared my dream with the men, I was the only woman on this crew, um, they were doing everything in their power to absolutely destroy me because like, no, California greenhorns don't cross our last frontier. And so I, um, I got out of that and I had a little bit of bundle of money in my hands. And so I started um, in Homer, Alaska, I started actually helping a, a neighbor where I was getting ready for my trip to uh, help him with his Iditarod sled dogs. And I was helping him train his sled dogs. And it was then that I told him that I wanted to cross Alaska by ski journey, which is where essentially you uh, attach one or two dogs to your waist and they pull you and your sled, you know? And so I was gonna do that. He let me a couple dogs to train with. He's like, take them, use them. They're retired. They crossed Alaska. They can pull you easy. And so I started training with them. And um, my objective was to ski down the frozen Yukon River in the dead of winter. And I did get my equipment from National Geographic. Um, I called them up saying, how do you weatherize a camera for extreme cold? And they're like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm crossing Alaska. And they're like, we'll send you the equipment. And so they um, sent me the equipment. I was ready to go. And five days before I was to leave, uh, this gentleman by the name of Jack Berry, who let me the two dogs, came up to me and said, I don't think you can do it. I think you're going to die before you make 100 miles. So he just goes, he said, I'm, I'm taking the dogs. And he took the dogs away. And I know he thought that if he took the dogs away, that I was going to obviously stop my trip. I wasn't going to go because who's going to pull my sled? So I yelled at him and said, fine, I'll pull the sled myself. And five days later, 55 below, I started pulling the sled by myself without my dogs. So ultimately what happened was um, I skied down the frozen Yukon River. I started on the Canadian Alaskan border and um, I literally had to sit there and talk myself into it. But by that time, I'd been through so much so much hell of people saying, no, you can't, and trying to sabotage me, that uh, it was the perfect fuel, right? It was the perfect rocket fuel for me. So I began to um, ski down that frozen Yukon River, 55 below, within a few, within just a, you know, a few hours, my eyelids froze and snapped off. And uh, the, by the third night, I, I froze to death for a short bit, but my legs started to convulse and brought me right back into my body again. And, and then within the third night, I had come um, upon a, a trapper's cabin. Uh, there was a Yukon Quest dog sled race, similar to the Iditarod, but much more extreme and tough, believe it or not. And, uh, I, and this was a checkpoint for this race. And one of these uh, dog sled racers said, you know, get to it if you can. It's 60 miles down the river. I'm like, sure. And I was barely making 10 miles at that point. The snow was so dry and and uh, stick, stick to the, it was sticking to the, the, the runners of my sled and my skis. And... Um, 
And so ultimately at that point in time, I did what any good woman would do. I'm like, if I'm going to make 60 miles and I got to make it because I'm not going to make another night, I stuffed my, my, my pocket with Reese's peanut butter cups and kept rewarding my way all the way and made it in 16 miles and got there. Ultimately, I spent 10 days with these two trappers and they literally gave me a, a trapper's boot camp taught me how to break through four feet of ice, set a beaver and a rabbit trap, how to make an Athabascan fire, a, a, a trapper's camp, um, literally how to survive. And, and to let you know, I didn't, have a, I didn't have a tent, I didn't have a gun and I didn't have a radio and I didn't need any of it. So um, after 10 days, I went on my way. Um, and once I got to my first village of Circle, which was 200 miles in, I realized that I could, I could handle the cold, but it was the loneliness that was eating away at me. So I got a dog, a sled dog that another trapper was gonna shoot and kill because um, he had three dogs that weren't pulling the sled fast enough. And he said, take one or all. And I took the one that was really friendly and he became my, my companion. He absolutely transformed my trip. I, I got my, my mind off myself, right? I was thinking, well, of course I have to survive. I've, I've got my dog, I've got to make it. So as I'm skiing with my dog, Diamond, we went from you know, me, me skiing by myself, making 10 miles, 20 miles a day to averaging 60 miles a day we were just blasting on, on that, that ice. And we ultimately got um, uh, to Stevens Village, just right up at the um, Arctic Circle. I was hitting the Athabascan villages along the way during the spring carnival. And right before I got to Stevens Village, I looked down at my feet and I gasped because I saw this water over the ice, it's called overflow. And I realized that the ice, the river was melting way ahead of schedule. And I was like, no, I'm halfway. I, I'm halffway. I I I don't know how am I, I I know no other way to go. I mean, I only have I'm I'm equipped for you know extreme cold. So I realized I had two options. I give up or I find a different way to continue. That's it, right? So I stayed in this Athabascan village, and the villagers are nice enough to clean out this little cabin on the banks of the Yukon. And while I'm there, the most amazing thing happened is I'm walking in and out my door of my little cabin. I see this little thing sticking out of the snowbank next to my cabin, and it begins to melt. And I'm like, what is that? And I, I dig it out. It's the last canoe built in this village 20 years before. And I think to myself, well, that's really, you know, that's good to think about. And while I'm there, I might be there for a month, two months, waiting for the river to break up. And I have to figure out what am I going to do? Do I stay? Do I continue? But I knew no matter what, while I was in that village, I wanted to pick up um, learning something to do, either making a pair of mucklucks or doing beadwork. I didn't know. So I have this most, most extraordinary experience while I'm there. I, while I'm waiting, I'm like, well, you know, I've got some time. So what I'll do is I'll do a light trip, not pull my sled. I'll go take my dog, bring just a few items with a backpack, ski 90 miles down to the nearest village for an adventure and then come back, you know, just keep myself busy. And it was on this, this, this part of the journey that ultimately as I was skiing, uh, I, I made the mistake of not going to the next village. I stopped in my tracks with my dog sitting there looking at the village going, wow, this is it. These are last days on the ice. I don't know what I'm going to do, but uh, I'll probably never experience anything like this again. And I turned around because I just wanted to be out in nature for like, just sit with it. Right. Which is a bit of a mistake because I just come through a horrendous blizzard as I started that little 90 mile trip of mine and it blew me pretty much down the whole entire river like a sail. And, um, and so what ended up happening was as I was um, getting my little camp set up for the evening, I hear this plane flying over low, you know, quite low. And I realized it was like a search party. They're looking for me thinking I had probably perished. And I was like, no, I'm fine, don't worry. And then about, oh, I don't know, less than an hour later, another plane comes along and he flies very low overhead. And sure enough, he throws something out. I'm thinking it's going to be chocolate chip cookies or something really yummy. And, um, and uh, you know, and he's yelling. The pilot was actually opening his window and yelling something out to me. And I'm like, I can't hear you. And so when he threw this out, I was very excited. And I picked it up and it was a 
plastic bag full of milk bone dog biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> and they were delicious. <laughs> I did not eat them. My dog wouldn't even eat them. Diamond's like, I eat salmon. I don't eat that. That's cardboard. And so, but there was a note in this, this bag that said, uh, I was from State Trooper Bob. And he said, look at, um, just checking on you. Um, there's a wolf pack following you. I'll try to distract them. P.S. The biscuits are for your companions. So what I did not know was there was a wolf pack behind me the whole entire time as I skiing back up the river and I was listening to Bonnie Raitt on my headphones, having a great time in the spring weather, didn't think to look behind me and I'm so glad I didn't. And then the next morning I'm getting going before the sun rises because the ice is slick and hard. And as I'm starting to get going, getting my, my rhythm, I stop in my tracks and I'm thinking the wolf pack. So I turn back behind me to look for the wolf pack and I don't see it. But what I do see is this beautiful, huge amber golden, full moon sinking behind the face of the canyon. And I go, oh, I almost missed that. That's stunning. Look at that. Oh my God, that's gorgeous. And then I look above my head and I'm seeing this beautiful Northern lights, just this, you know, all the colors tiptoeing, dancing across the sky, chasing after its own tail. I'm looking at that going, oh, I almost missed that. Look at that's beautiful. And then I look ahead and I see this beautiful sunrise just starting, right? And I'm seeing the sunrise and the Northern lights and a full moon all at the same time. I don't, I didn't even know this was possible to see all at once. And all those colors would be reflected in the, in the, in the ice, right? And, and in the snow. And, and, and it looks like the whole world is exploding in color around me. And I'm so captured by that. I think to myself, I'm not stopping now. I'm not stopping. This is what I came for. This is what I want more of. And I know exactly what I'm going to do. So I race right back up to Stevens Village. I make my announcement to the elders. I'm going to build myself a canoe. <laughs> I'm building a canoe. Hey, I'm going to build a canoe. All I need are some tools. And the word got back to me that women don't build canoes in their culture. That's just not what they do. So I had to go back to the elders and I had to say, no, 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 you don't understand where I come from. That's what women do in California. We're, we're canoe builders. <laughs> well, they couldn't Google that. They didn't know that. That's not really quite true. They let me the tools. I cut down three trees. I brought them on in. I had asked the Athabascans, what do I look for? They said, a tree straight, as few limbs as possible. Bark goes up and down, not crooked. I did what they said. And then the elders actually had a herb, a big-bellied Athabascan, come and have a fatherly talk with me. And he sat on the log, and we looked out over the river, and he says, we uh, called you Wonder Woman because of all the miles you can ski in a day. But you build this canoe, and we're going to call you Fruitcake. <laughs> so I start hand planting these beautiful 18, pl pl 18 foot long planks of wood that I had ripped with a chainsaw. Then I start using a hatchet and a, and a hammer and I start hand planting and hand planting. And this is where I got the most beautiful glimpse into our humanity. And this was a game changer for me. So as I'm making this canoe, they're passing by and they're going fruitcake, you know, and I'm working five days a week, five hours a day, like it was my job. And they're like fruitcake and the kids are coming by emulating that, they're like fruitcake, you know. And what's really fascinating was that the children were coming along and they're saying, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm building a canoe like you all have built for thousands of years. And that a canoe had not been built in that village for 20 years. These children had not been exposed to their own culture and they forgot how to, and I saw the break. I saw the break in, in this indigenous people's culture and their wisdom. The children at that point no longer knew how to build a canoe. And it was heartbreaking to see that. And so they would hand plane and I would hand plane and they would learn and I would learn and, 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 the, and the elders would come by. I'm like, how's this look? How's this look? Well, what happened was, well, they're going fruitcake, fruitcake. But what happened ultimately is I hand planed 
all these beautiful 18 foot long planks of wood. I submerged them in the local muskrat pond. I then put them at my feet. I had a, I had a pile enough for two and a half canoes. I thought I was gonna be breaking a lot of wood just in case I wanted extra. And this beautiful thing happened. All of a sudden, when I started to assemble this beautiful canoe with the ribs, right, and the and the um, the bars and stuff like that, they stopped coming by saying fruitcake instead. They started to come by and say, I've got a sea clamp for that if you need a sea clamp. And someone else came by saying, I got some galvanized screws if you need some. And then someone else came by saying, I got some oil-based marine paint. Uh, you like blue and red. And I made that thing in three and a half weeks. It was, it, was, it was two and a half weeks of hand planing, a week of assemble. And then I paddled that baby 900 miles in 11 days on flat water. Wow. So that took me four months, six days. And then I sent the, the footage to National Geographic. They edited a sh short little 10 minute version, put it on, on air. And they told me that I was the first woman on, on record that we knew of, right? White woman, you know, in record, I don't know. Indigenous women may have done a hundred or thousand years ago, I don't know, but on record as the first woman to cross Alaska alone. But what had happened to me was that ultimately shaped me for my leadership later on. And the reason why I did was a couple of different things. One is <clears throat> I was trying to escape my humanity and my humanity wouldn't let me. I was a stranger on the ice, but when I'm out there skiing by myself, I would have a, a, a bush pilot land while I'm there with my dog and he'd sit there on his skis throw me a Snickers, open up his canister of, you know, his thermos of hot coffee, drink it, say, how you do? Is there anything I can do for you? Do you need anything? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Thank you for asking. He's like, okay, so I'm just checking. And they fly away, right? <laughs> you know, and then when I saw the people, when I started to build, I realized that you have to show people, like you can give them all the blueprints and you can talk all you want. But once people see you're doing something, they want to be part of that. They want to be part of a train that's moving forward, right? They love to be part of something creative and imaginative and, and like, that's crazy. Let's do it, right? So I understood how we, we fundamentally work. And there's also something very interesting too I learned about myself and all of us, right? And that is if somebody said to me on the banks of that Yukon River, Renette, in order for you to get from point A to point B, this is what you're gonna to have to do. You're gonna to have to freeze your eyelashes off. You're gonna to have to find two trappers to teach you how to make an Athabascan fire and a, and a, and a, and a trapper's camp. And how to, you have to learn how to cut through four feet of ice to learn how to set a beaver trap. And you're gonna to have to learn how to cut down three trees, build a canoe, be chased by wolf packs, blah, blah, blah. I would look at you and I would say, you're crazy. <laughs> I can't do that. I don't know how to do any of that. I, I wouldn't even know where to start, but when the time came and every single time when I had every available reason to say no and give up or find a different way to continue, every time I found a different way to continue. And that is the human spirit. That is in all of us. And that journey is what totally created this lens that I look through as a leader and as an individual, as a human being these days. Absolutely remarkable. Thank you for that. And uh, I, I can't think of any better, probably training experience to temper one's constitu uh, constitution to meet the perils of the political class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, which do you think was worse out there, the the perils of the wild or the or the politicians? So, uh, yeah. perfect segue to get into. Get into, so the politics. So you're breaking up a little bit. It's probably your satellite. Um, 
Right. So I ultimately, when I filmed this for National Ge Geographic, I, I, I fell in love with filmmaking. So I actually went to Los Angeles and studied filmmaking for eight years and did not, I was not a big city girl. I'm more of a small country girl, right? But I went down there. I loved every aspect of filmmaking. And then I came back after 9-11. I came back home because digital editing was available and you had digital cameras. So I didn't have to live in LA. And and it was then that I began to really become aware of, of all things, our, our addiction to oil and the perils of that, right? Going out and, and, and causing wars and taking over, you know, other nations' resources and and realizing too that ultimately we were being held over a barrel, whether peak oil existed or artificial peak oil, where right you could just be held back and, and we'd be strangled. I realized that we were actually very vulnerable, vulnerable as a nation. So I went out in 2005 and had my first um, my first uh, um, conference. I put together a peak oil conference, and after that. We or, or uh, myself and others organized an organization called Apple Alliance for a Post Petroleum Local Economy, and um, when uh, we did this, we began to really start working on making people more resilient. You know, having cow shares and car shares, and you know, a time bank and and organic farms. And I started the first organic farmers market in Nevada County, and and we had our uh, the, we built a beautiful green sustainable building, and I made sure to get um, um, you know solar on, on every municipally owned building in Nevada City, and and then I realized ultimately that sustainability and having a real clear vision of where we were to go as a community was not being discussed at the city council table. So I decided to run in two thousand eight for city council. And I got the most elect, uh, most votes in the 150 year history of Nevada City. I got 82 to 84%, I can't remember exactly. And I became vice mayor and then mayor the next year. And that first four years was fantastic. We were just, I was just, it was a beautiful year where I actually handpicked my own sustainability team. I call it my dream team where we created a 20 year vision. Um, it was the first city sanctioned sustainable vision for the city ever. And we started kind of checking off the list and we were working on creating like a town square and, and doing a lot of other incredible things. And I was on the council for four years and I thought it was done. I set the, the, the town off into its trajectory. And then the next four years I was off the council. And at that time, I had um, already um, had installed in downtown Nevada City on Commercial Street, a little parklet, we call it the boardwalk. And we were doing this to ultimately kind of create um, a, a, an example of what a town square could do for the, for the strength and the beauty of a, of a, of a community. Um, most cities and towns, including Nevada City, lost their town squares to highways, believe it or not. Um, highways took out town squares throughout the United States and that actually changed the fabric of, of communities and the health of communities, right? If you didn't have that nexus point, you're basically disabled. So we were trying to bring that back because we realized that that communication and networking, you can have all the farms you want and this and that, but if you don't know each other and who has what, who has what supplies and sources, you're still disabled and you're crippled. So so that was really key. So this parklet for those four years, I, I was waiting for somebody to kind of go out there and maintain it and take it on and nobody would. And I thought, well, why don't you just go do it, Renette? So I went out and I started uh, planting, you know, 14 foot high sunflowers and and uh, you know, planting beautiful flowers and, and re-sanding it down every year and maintaining it. And, and it was like a four-year you know, social, you know, political social degree that I received because I really sat there for hundreds and hundreds of hours just watching the town pass by, right? Seeing the crime happening, seeing the beauty happening, seeing the, the gaps, what was working and the influences and the good and the bad. I mean, it was really, I was able to see a slice of, of our community quite clearly, what was working and what wasn't working and, and where I could make changes. And, and um, interestingly enough, at that point in time, there's a lot of individuals in the community who anytime I had a good idea, were just getting kind of petty personal politics or trying to kill any good idea that I had. I think it's just, you know, politics is a race to the bottom, right? Politics mm -hmm. is a race to the bottom. And, and I'm a doer. I, I'll, I'll, I'll run circles around people and I'm not trying to do it to 
to outdo anybody. That's just my energy and how I do things. I, I'm a workhorse. I, I'm, I'm a hands-on person. I, I like to get my hands dirty. I'm in the trenches. That's how I work. And so when I started bringing these projects towards the, the, the city to try to get them passed, they just kept saying, no, 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 no. We don't want that. It's like, well, actually, that's not true. I'm as much as I'm a, I'm a talker and I have a loud voice and a big personality, I actually listen really well. And I do know how to take the pulse on people. And what I do is I get the pulse. I say, okay, I see what you want. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to carve a path for all of you so you can get there. And a lot of local politicians don't like that. And so over and over again, they kept saying, no, I thought, well, it looks like I'm going to have to jump back into the fray again. And I ran again and I got reelected and I became vice mayor and mayor again. And, but it was interesting because this time around, the world had changed with that four-year gap. What happened these last four years, and this was from 2016 to 20, what I realized is that we're much more on defense. There was, you know, catastrophic fires. Paradise just happened only, you know, like an hour from us. Catastrophic fires, PG&E blackouts that were decimating businesses and destroying, they couldn't recover, right? We had homeowner insurance policy, um, uh, you know, a cancellation. So people were losing their homes. We had the, the rise in the homelessness, right? And just more of a, a political divide and, and, and just, just lack and disregard of, 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 of people's opinions, right? And, and respecting the difference of opinions, which I think is, 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 is important. And I love that we can have different opinions and still work together. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about human beings. And, and so it was really, what I noticed is I was playing in my little sandbox, my little Tonka toys, and there's incoming missiles all the time and constant interference. So all we were doing was constantly having to be on the defense. There was a lot less proactive work and more defensive work. And um, then what happened was, was when I was mayor in 2020, it was in January early that I um, became aware of this thing called coronavirus in China. And I knew about SARS and MERS and H1N1, but I was never concerned about this. But for some reason, my instincts, which are pretty honed, I started paying attention to what was going on in China. What was grabbing my attention was what, how the government was reacting, what I was seeing. And I went out of my way to go get Instagram, Twitter, Facebook accounts to see kind of, you know, on the personal level what was going on. And I was highly alarmed. I was alarmed by what I was seeing with the deaths. Didn't know if it was real or not, but I was also highly alarmed by people being locked and barred into their apartments and being dragged off into cars and vans. And it, it, was, it was frightful. But the biggest mystery for me at that time was the, the, the variant, how strong was it? At that point in time, I was watching daily the John Hopkins University uh, updates that was saying that it was going to, it was going to double, the, the, the rate of infection was gonna double every five to 6.4 days. And according to my calculations, pretty easy to do that meant the whole entire world was gonna be consumed with this virus by the end of April. So by March, you know, and I was actually talking to the county and the city saying, hey guys, there's this thing called coronavirus. You may or may not know about it, but essentially um, we've got to get ready and there might be supply interruptions, political interruptions, I don't know, but we've got a tidal wave coming at us and just be ready for, for something you've never seen before. And this was just really my own instincts. And I was actually quite shocked by how lackadaisical our county was. When I talked to them, they're like, nah, we're more worried about the PG&E blackouts. I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's a worry too, but this is something else. And and I was a bit shocked by how little they were reacting because I'm like, look it, if this is as infectious as they say, time is of the essence. And we need to actually go out there, make people aware, say, look it, this is the time not to be in crowds, stay home, take it easy, put a mask on. I was like, at this point in time, we thought maybe masks would work, did not know. And um, 
protect yourself, get some supplies, and just go out as less, little as possible just be, until we get the data. We, did, we were all going off of predictive models at that point in time, right? We had no hard data. So we're just doing a lot of guesswork. I then at that time as a mayor signed a declaration of emergency which would set us up for FEMA funds and other COVID funds later and so on. And I was, you know, I'm a person happy on the edge and I don't mind taking risks whatsoever, but at that point in time, had to be conservative as safe as possible. So I signed this declaration and my partner and I of, of 12 years at that point in time, we actually started, we started self-isolating early. I was running my third campaign, running for, um, you know, my third election. And we actually had a beautiful parade right here in downtown Nevada City, where I'm two blocks from. And I was going to go down there with my science and promote myself. And I actually did not go into the parade. I did not go and promote my campaign because I was like, I, I don't, I don't know if that's a good idea right now. Right. And people were just ignoring the coronavirus and I didn't know, but I'm like, and I actually cried. I actually cried that day because I was hearing these beautiful sounds of laughter and music and the banging of the drums, right? And, and I could hear this gorgeous sound that was so familiar in Nevada City. We, we had an excuse for a parade and we would have a parade in Nevada City. And I was crying because I thought, you know, this may be the last time I hear this sound for a long time. And I knew I could hear it, I could feel it. So ultimately what happened was we got the data, it was coming in. And it wasn't that bad. I'm like, awesome, awesome. We got around this, this is great. We got around this. We should, now's the time to have a parade. We should celebrate, right? Yeah. And I'm in these Zoom calls with our elected officials, our city and our county representatives and our health department heads. And, and I'm like, hey, 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 you guys, look at this data here, look at this. And we have, we have doctors who are successfully, they have they've found therapies, they're treating, you know, it's get it early on, you do this, do you do that? We're okay, we're good. Intubation's not necessarily the answer. And they kept saying, Renette, stop asking so many questions. If you wanna ask more than two questions, wait till this meeting is over. We'll get everyone off the Zoom call and then we'll go into the, the, you know, the, the, the blades of grass. And every time I'd put my hand up, they'd mute me, they'd ignore me, or they'd put me on the sideline. But look at guys, we're okay. We just we need to adjust ourselves accordingly. This is when we go out there and we make sure that we distribute the, the vitamin D and vitamin C and the zinc tablets. This is when we go out there and we make sure that we have organic gardens in every neighborhood, right? And we have people getting their hands in the soil, eating organic food communing, boosting that acquired immune system. This is where we just do a big sigh of relief and say, okay, we're good. Now let's make sure this never happens again. Silence. Go home, stay home, be afraid, don't socialize and put your mask on and destroy your ability to make an income was the message we got over and over and over again. And I was saying, we've got a problem. So at this point in time, we are now getting, I've won my third election. I'm gonna get back on the council. I'm still mayor. And at this point in time, I'm looking at the research and I've always, my type of leadership is whether I'm fighting 5G, cell antennas, trying to educate people on anything from parking meter science to going out there and how to you know, use goats for grazing to reduce our fire risk. I go out there and I literally search out the, the, the premier experts in the respective fields. And, and even with COVID, I was going out there finding experts in their fields, getting them the right letters to our city council members to put in the agenda package to say, look, it's not as bad as you think. Renette is actually right, believe it or not. This is what you can do. This is the plan forward. And I was not even allowed half the time to put those items into the agenda, right, throughout my career. And this was another one of those times. And now I do know enough, and let me tell you, um, 
I've been a house painter for 35 years and I've done a lot of other things. I've been an ED of nonprofits and, and I've had, you know, a restaurant, I've had a cellular phone store, you know, but, but I basically also been a house painter. I just finished painting a house a week ago and I've actually injured my lungs from, from paint, from painting and wearing a mask improperly. So when I was saying to people like, look at this, these N95 masks, they're not the end all. And it looks like it's not going to work with these type of virus, right? Cause the virus is so small. But you can injure yourself if you incorrectly wear a mask. I know this because 20 years ago, I started to develop a hack at nighttime and I found out I had what's called industrial bronchitis, which meant I was wearing dirty masks, thinking, ah, it's better to wear a mask than not at all. It was on the bottom floor of my car, but I'll pop it on. I'm spraying today. Or it wasn't fitted to my face and the, the paint would come in and I damaged my lungs. So I'm like, look at guys masks can and, and that's what our health department was saying in the beginning like no masks aren't that safe people don't wear them properly no 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 and then one day just like Fauci they just changed their mind but it's not based on science it's not based on data and and I'm saying no 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 wait 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 you guys it's not as virulent it's not as deadly we, we're out of the woods let's get back to life now the sun's coming it's summer let's get the acquired immune system going let's promote vitamin d and c and zinc and so on and and healthy living and getting your hands into the soil let's do that and again crickets and then here comes governor newsom and he makes this mass mandate and i've been watching him making these executive orders over and over again totally bypassing the legislative process which is absolutely legally required in order to pass bills. And he has now made himself the king and he's passing these laws. And let me tell you, he's passed over 400 laws in less than a year, like in six months, actually. This is a record by himself. This is not democracy, just to be very clear. This is not representative government, to be clear. And so he makes his mask mandate and I'm like, wow, didn't know we could do that. So I, um, I went down to our police chief at that point and I talked to him, I said, Chad, so this mask mandate, I said, tell me, I said, are you going to enforce it? And he's like, no. I said, is this legal? And he's like, no. He goes, there's no penal code. We can't do a thing. It's not a law. There's no penal code and we can't enforce it. And it's just, that's not how it works. I'm like, Thanks, that's just what I wanted to know. Thank you very much. And then at the same time, I go back home. There's a woman named Peggy Hall, who's the healthy American. I have been in watching her videos and she happened to have a video going through how laws are made, how legislation is done, what Newsom had done illegally. And I don't care what the courts are saying. The courts are now hijinked and they're as corrupt as can be. Um, and they're saying, well, as long as it's an emergency, he can do this, Like, but we're not an emergency. And emergencies don't go on for years and years. Emergency is like for a matter of a few days, a month or so, until you get everything you know, taken care of and then you're out of the emergency and you move on. It does not go on in perpetuity. So I went out there because at this point in time, I had been so frustrated that nobody was hearing me. Our local press was eviscerating me, villainizing me, misquoting me lying, misrepresenting the truth, that I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to go out there once again. I've done this before on Facebook and make a big, bold statement. And I went out there and did exactly what you had read earlier. I made this post and I knew it was going to, it was going to, you know, cause darts to be thrown at me, but I'm like, I, I've got a job to do. And I took an oath to protect my constituents from enemies, foreign and domestic. And from what I can tell, we've got a lot of, 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 of enemies around domestic enemies all around us. So I did this, um, Letting people know, like you, you have rights to breathe the air. 
right? There are certain processes for a law to be to be made, and this is not it. And 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 I and I have a job not just as a as an elected official, but just as a citizen, as a as a community member, to protect my friends and my neighbors and say, look at you guys. And this is the other important piece too that I was really disturbed by. When we had first come out of that lockdown, Dr. Barr, we came out of that lockdown this one evening, people were like literally kind of coming out of their homes. I was in a little tiny back patio of a restaurant called 111. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching people walk out, people I know, friends, they're teenagers. And they're walking out and they're kind of doing this. They're just like, and they, they're walking out with this look of shock on their face. And they're kind of almost doing this like, are we here? Are we, are we, did we, did we survive? Are we okay? <laughs> And I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, what in the world? And looking at their face and their eyes. And I'm thinking, what is this reminding me of? And I realized, oh my gosh, this reminds me of when I went to Hurricane Katrina right after the hurricane had happened. I went twice. I went there to, to muck out houses and to rebuild. And then, uh, then I went returned to do animal rescue, which I have one of my cats who is still here 15 years later, 16 years later. And, um, and when I was there, I saw this look of shock and trauma in people's faces, right? Even months later, they were still in shock and had this look of trauma in their face. And I'm looking at my neighbors and my friends, I'm looking in their eyes, I'm like, they've been traumatized. They're in shock. And I'm thinking, why are they traumatized if they're, they're in, the, in the safety of their homes? Why, why would they have this look of shock? What's going on, right? And I realized, I get it. Everyone was locked up. And what happened? Universally, we all had a stream put between me and you, me and community, me and a different story, right? Me and the world around us and our experiences. And I realized those screens, whether it was a phone and a MacBook, right? An iPad had so been able to nail us down because you're giving them so much data now, right? Because you're on the screen. So we're giving data, data, data. And there's all this in algorithms, all this data collection that each and every single person was being, having the, the, the fear of God put into them and absolutely 100% traumatized that they were going to die, that they were not going to live unless we did every single thing they did. And when they came out, it was done. They were programmed. And I saw that in the late part of, of, of the fall of last year. And I was horrified by that. And it was very hard to explain to people because again, unless you experience it, it's people don't believe it, right? I mean, experiences are the most profound lessons of, of life, right? Book learning is only so much, but to have the first-hand experience, that's where it like locks into your DNA. Well, people didn't believe that. And then when I began to do more research and I found out that the Biden's chart of coercion, the Biden are eight steps to coerce a person, to torture a person, to actually get them to capitulate, to do whatever you want. The first thing you do to get a person to start begin torturing them is you isolate them. Isolation is more powerful than waterboarding or pulling someone's fingernails off. It is actually considered a crime against humanity to isolate a person, right? Sol solitary confinement more than, more than 22 hours a day, 15 days in a row is considered inhumane treatment. How long have we been locked away? Once you do that, then it's humiliation and then it's you know uh, omnipotence and then it's like, um, you know, um, trivial laws, and then you let a little bit of freedom, then more laws again, and back and forth, and 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 um, and I realized my this this chart of coercion, this Biden's chart of coercion, had been used on the whole entire global population, and then on top of that, we have a gentleman by the name of Dr. Bragan, 
who is a well-known um, psychiatrist, and he's considered the, the conscientious of, uh, of, of, uh, of psychiatry. And he was saying, look at guys, there's this thing called fear appeal, which is a very well-known, respected field of public policy. And that is where you may have something like smoking or obesity or driving down the highway too quickly. And what you do is, as you kind of put the fear of God into a person, letting them know that their life is at risk, their loved one's life is, lives are at risk. And what you do is you get, you build that fear so it becomes anxiety. And once they're anxious, what you do is you propose a solution and they'll just eat that up like this and do as you say, well, that's great until you weaponize it. And from what I could see, the fear appeal policy, that field of study had been weaponized. Our health department went from being a health department to a COVID department. It had been weaponized. Our media had been weaponized. Our political representatives had been weaponized, right? And, and even our neighbors were, had become weaponized and we were going at each other, right? Social media had become weaponized. And from what I could tell, we were in a full throttle World War III. And people don't like it when I say that. <laughs> yep. But you can mark my words and come back years from now and watch this video and tell me where I'm wrong. But this is World War III. It is weaponized. It is silent weapon weaponry. It is highly technological. It is using disinformation, misinformation, and algorithms, artificial intelligence, bioweaponry, right? That's where we are. People don't want to hear this. I understand yeah. because it scares us. Centralized but, corporate media. Oh, yeah. Oh, censorship. Cancel culture. Yep. This is what you do when you're trying to silence the people who are calling out the truth. And so on July 8th, when I'm ready to step down as mayor, take my oath for my third term, run a Zoom call. Of course, we're not in our chambers any longer for the council meetings. And and, and I said to everyone, just to be very clear, I'm ready to start my third term, but I have to tell you something that many, many years ago, there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Leonard Hardell, who spent years and years collecting uh, empirical evidence and studies to convince the World Health Organization that, that um, Agent Orange is a cancer-causing agent. And once he was able to convince the WHO, they went out to all of these chemical companies saying, please stop spraying, you're committing crimes against humanity. They would not, so they actually ultimately sent them all this evidence and studies and so on. And once they did this, they were then able to take them to the world courts and hold them for crimes against humanity. And there's only one question and one question that they asked. And that question was, what did you know by when? To, 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 to identify whether or not they're committing a crime against humanity. What did you know by when? So I said to my city council, at this point in time, you, you received enough information to know better. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to resign and I'm going to step down because I'm going to continue to call out the truth. And I can't seem to do it in this arena because my city staff was just in the crosshairs and, and we have a tiny town. They can't afford that time of time and energy. And I'm going to step down as a citizen and I'm stepping down to step out and what we're going to step up, I should say. And what I'm going to do is we're going to come back and we're going to hold your feet to the fire and we're going to hold you to the highest extent of the law for committing crimes against humanity, because that's what you're doing. This is inexcusable. And I stepped down. Bravo. So since then, I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I had to do something. And at that point in time, I thought, well, what I would do is I would just simply um, start doing podcasts and interviews of different respected uh, experts in their fields. And and I began doing that. I have a, little, I have a, a podcast called Renette Senem's 
um, chew on this. Of course, it's been removed, deplatformed from Facebook. I'm still on BitChute. I upload on BitChute. Um, I also will upload every now and then. I'm a little bit behind, but I do upload those videos on my own personal website called The Foghorn Express, thefoghornexpress.com. And um, I'm going to try to educate the public and my neighbors, my friends, and bring in the people that the press is ignoring, bring in the people that our, our governor and his circle of experts are ignoring, and, and, and bring these people in so we can actually make educated decisions, which is what's happened is that we are not making educated decisions. We are actually operating on that part of our lizard brain that's in complete fear. And when that happens, you do not have the ability to process new information and actually make an informed decision. That's what's happening. That too is by design. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to counter that and then you're on your own. And so I did that. And ultimately, long story short, I began, um, I went on the Dell Big Tree show. I was telling my story there. I was being interviewed here and there. And I teamed together with a lot of people here in the state of California, actually even around the, the, the country, because we know what's at stake with California. If California falls, the rest of the nation will go. And we put together a statewide campaign that we'll be announcing here in just a matter of days. And we call it the Wake the Bear campaign because we're waking the mama bear. And um, and it's all about the seventh generation principle. This is a beautiful statewide campaign. And the seventh generation principle to let people know what we're doing is many people don't realize that the constitution was actually inspired by the six nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. Our indigenous people gave us this beautiful sense of freedom that we have, right? And I, as a, as a gay woman, have been able to go out there around the world, do whatever I dreamed of, whether I'm successful or not, I've had the great, great privilege of being able to pursue any dream that I conjured up. And if I were a Pakistani girl or an Indian girl, I would not have this privilege and this luxury, right? This was given to us by our indigenous people. And it was not until 1988 that Congress actually finally recognized that, formally recognized the indigenous you know, um, influence of the Iroquois Confederacy. But what was really fascinating as we look at our constitution, it's just kind of falling apart and seems to be getting eroded and eviscerating. And that is because ultimately when I'm looking at it, going, why, does, why is this happening? Why is it that it, it stood the time with, it, with, with our indigenous people, but not with us? And I realized that this beautiful vessel, the constitution had two important components that we did not include. Every vessel must have a compass and an anchor. And this vessel came without the compass and the anchor. The compass being the seventh generation. Every decision you make today must serve seven generations from now. You do not steal from the future. You do not take from the future, right? And then that, that, that anchor is the, the elders. The elders actually ensured, right? By looking back the last seven generations and including the wisdom and the lessons along the way that we fold that in to ensure seven generations from now have what we have plus more. So what I began to do with other brilliant people who are as concerned as I am for our children because right now they're clearly being experimented on 100% by these biological experimental inoculations, is that not only have we taken their future, but as my dear friend Lee Dundas said, we have even taken their today. It's gone. Mm -hmm. So this beautiful platform, we have a contract with Californians. It's 23 pages long. And it literally lays out a blueprint for California. And it has seven different components to it. And all these components always have the lens of the seventh generation. If it does not serve seven generations, we're not going to do it. And it is a living document. And what I mean by that is it is not static. We are always folding in that collective genius. That story I told you about building the canoe, I was able to build that canoe and paddle that baby 75 miles a day 
through three to four foot white cap waves because I was sitting there hand playing, hand playing. The Athabascans would come along and they say, well, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I allowed that collective genius to be folded in. I did not own it as myself and you know, hold my, my cards close to my chest and say, no, mine, mine, mine. No, 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 no. What I have learned is I might have a spectacular idea. Think, I got this great idea. I'm going to do this. And when you let the, the collective genius come in and add to it, I would always overshoot my most wildest dreams and concepts because I let that collective genius go, right? So this contract with Californians is on paper, the collective genius. This is our roadmap. And what we're doing is making sure that this campaign that we're putting forward, that our success is not going to be incumbent upon winning the statewide campaign. We're going to make sure that our success is actually going to be incumbent upon changing the face of California through the campaign itself. Because we know how rigged these campaigns are and we're not breaking any laws, but you better believe Dr. Barr that we're not gonna play by the rules any longer. And we're out there to change the game and to ensure that seven generations not only has the planet we have today, but a better one. Bravo. Wow. Barry, you there? <laughs> so <away. laughs> we, yeah, I, that was so amazing. Um, you know, we know that, that people like Newsom are experienced. And and I've, I've had a little experience Bear, you're you're breaking up pretty breaking bad. Myself. You're breaking up um, how pretty many bad. Do you right? believe are actually Hey Bear, okay. can you start you over go again? Ahead, Mike. Okay. Well, I I think I know where you're going we're going from and and this is what I'll say right here. here. Um, you know, we on this show we talk a lot about how there seems to be an ever increasing stratification of a global corporate sphere sure. of control over all all aspects of um of society, of our lives. And this goes from the, the federal level down to the community level. And we know with things like Agenda 2030 and uh, sustainable development stuff that they, they call that, but we know it's not that, right? They've injected this into the locality to take over local uh, government. Um, is there still a political solution, do you think, Renette, uh, for this? Or is it gonna take more of a ground swelling kind of um, uprising to really have an effect to turn the tide against this large stratification of, of global governance? Wonderful question. So this campaign we're talking about, there's no one person that's going to save us. And I don't care who gets elected, let's say, let's say for instance, as governor with this recall or for the 2022 uh, election cycle, one person cannot save us. That's, that's a myth. They can help us. They can give us tools. They can set policies. They can help set, right, set, set ourselves for a different shore, for sure. But this is all hands on deck. So what we're doing with this campaign is that we're going around and not just promoting somebody being elected in one position, is we are actually trying to, we are going to inspire and motivate people to run for every school board, county commission, city council, mayoral ship position, and this is what we're asking them, is that ideally it'd be great right now if people would just drop the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, because really, come on, folks, they're representing big money. And you cannot be a Dem or Republican right now and not be absolutely ruled by big money. You cannot serve the Democrats or the Republicans right now and actually serve the people. That's diametrically opposed, it's impossible because big money has gotten a hold of our whole entire political system, period. 
But what we're doing is we're saying, look at folks, best thing to do is actually vote for somebody who's a decline to state, somebody who's not in the party system because a decline the state could actually represent you right now, right? They could actually hear you like I did on small scale, right? We're talking scaling up here. On a small micro scale, I was able to sit there on that little tiny boardwalk in downtown Nevada City on Commercial Street, get the pulse of the people and go right into the city hall and represent them without interference, right? But you can't do that with the Democrats and the Republican Party because you've got big money behind them. And if you start going off and derailing and representing the people, they're going to rein you right back in again. That's how that's going to work. So that's the first thing. But what we're doing is we're challenging people to statewide campaign, this wake the bear campaign. And what we're saying to people is whether you are a Democrat or Republican, if you want to stick with those two parties, fine. Independent, fine. Libertarian, fine. But this is what we're going to do and we're going to challenge you to do is we're going to ask you, we're going to ask you to think of your children, your grandchildren, children, what we've done to them right now. And we're going to ask and challenge you to actually fold in that seventh generation principle into everything you do. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, we're going to ask you to think about the children because this is a form of drafting. And what I mean by that is if we think ahead, we will pull ourselves forward. If we look forward, we will drop our weapons. We will drop our caustic words. We'll look to the future, the betterment of the children, and we'll literally come together without sitting there having to battle it out and think someone's going to win. No one's going to win in this game. No one's going to win in this, this ring that we're in right now. But if we all redirect our attention to the future, we will literally pull ourselves forward and end the divide once and for all. And when people say to me, what do you mean seventh generation, how do you fold that in? I'm like, oh, I'll give you a real simple, basic example of what I'm talking about. Let's say I'm a farmer and I've got weeds along my farm and my roadway and I wanna get rid of those weeds. I can ask myself, do I spray with Roundup, glyphosate, or do I spray with white vinegar? What better serves the seventh generation? Mm-hmm. And this is what I've said to Many, many years ago, I had a great meeting with a gentleman by the name of Stan Stan Meckler. His son, Mark Meckler, started the Tea Party. Actually, the Tea Party Patriots started right here in downtown Nevada City, right where that little boardwalk was, as a matter of fact. Wow. Didn't know that. And and we were diametrically opposed, right? I'm this more libertarian, I'm sorry, more liberal, well, actually, a little bit of a libertarian, progressive libertarian. And I'm over here, and there, you know, Tea Party over here. And I sat down with, with Stan Meckler the father of Mark Meckler. And we sat down and it was like a big deal for us to come together. We had this breakfast this one morning. And I asked Stan, I said, Stan, I said, what's your, what's your biggest concern? And this was 11, 12 years ago. And he said, I'm worried about, I'm worried for my grandchildren. And I said, I'm worried for your grandchildren too. And we had an instant connection. And once we connected, we started to talk about that, right? And I realized that this is where we were coming together. And I said, you know, Stan, I have to tell you something. I said, I understand the Tea Party, and I actually don't disagree with a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, your your beliefs and so on. I mean, I'm I'm not your normal progressive whatsoever. I mean, I really, you you can't pin, you can't pinhole me or you know put me into a, a a box whatsoever. I just I just don't operate that way. But I said I kind of understand all the parties and where they come from. I don't always 100% agree, but I said I understand the Tea Party. I said but I have to tell you something. I understand why you want smaller government because I actually I actually do like smaller government, right? That's a little bit different than most, let's say, Democrats and progressives. I said I think they're interfering in our our lives a little bit too much. I said, but let me tell you. I said you would be able to get more people into fold into let's say the Tea Party if you would encourage your ranchers, your farmers your Tea Party members to actually fold in that seventh generation principle. 
And if we could actually have the farmers and the ranchers and you know so on and, and the politicians actually make the decisions at the local level to serve seven generations, we don't need government telling us what to do, giving us the red tape, giving us the fines, giving us the fees, giving us the interference. If we would just make the decisions, we don't need big government to do it for us. Because let me tell you, all those environmental decisions and all that red tape they've been giving us hasn't served the seventh generation anyway. It served their pocketbooks. It served big corporations. It hasn't. We st after all this environmental regulation, where are we? Nowhere. We're on the brink of ecological disaster. And I'm not talking climate change. I'm talking our water, our soil. We have 64 harvests left worth of, worth of topsoil. 64 harvests on this planet worth of topsoil. Now we're saying we don't have water. We live on a water planet. You telling me you don't have water available? Who's taking it? But if you guys would fold in these principles just into the Tea Party, you would get hundreds, you would get thousands, you would get millions of people. Because now we're serving the environment, not climate change, but the environment, right? And we're serving our children and we can all work, work and move forward again. And I don't know if that was heard or not, but that's where I am now 12 years later, fast forward here. I'm like, okay, they may not have heard me. But this is what we're going to do here, and we're going to do it across the state. And we're going to all be getting on a bus, going up and down campaigning, having workshops. We're going to have a backbone to our workshops, including private membership associations, teaching people about PMAs, which is actually what the upper echelon has been doing for generations, which sidesteps all the bureaucracy and the red tape. It's a two-tiered system, right? The RNC and the DNC and Bank of America, I think even the Vatican are private membership associations. They don't pay the fees. They don't have the regulations. They don't need the permission, but us little guys, we do. So we have people now becoming private membership associations. So yes. we're going to teach people about that. We're going to teach them about regenerative farming. We're going to teach them about rebuilding their topsoil. We're going to teach them about pollinator gardens, right? We're going to actually fold them in and give them hands-on projects to empower them with little tiny goals so they know that they're the leaders in their own communities. And then we're going to encourage them to actually go out there and start running for those positions to become the leaders that we really are. One other thing too, Renette, I'd love to talk to you about sometime is uh, economic sovereignty. That's something I work in the background. And that's, I think, one of the biggest issues, what you're talking about with the seven generation principles. We don't have that because we live in a debt-based system. Right. It has been a credit-based system where everybody's now, 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 got to have it now. Um, and there, there no, we're in an, um, you know, an inflationary system instead of a deflationary saving system like we used to be with the gold standard where everybody inherited their property. They had long-term investment, long-term view for the generations. Now it's just burn it now, burn it now, do we can now build now build junk you know and that is a huge huge issue and that's why some, why i like bitcoin and why i like some other options there hard metals and stuff because i feel like if we can get people sovereign with their money supply because we know there's some big stuff coming down the line with the money situation um that is a huge massive aspect in local currencies local sovereignty local commerce even bartering um, developing all that. We'll be talking a lot about that at Music and Sky uh, coming up next weekend. So I would love to have an even offline chat with you about that and some solutions we're developing and decentralized internet protocols, dis decentralization using um, new technologies. 100%. And the blockchain absolutely need to utilize blockchain for, for elections. 100%. Yep. All these good, good works I'm talking about, if we do not have control 
over our election process, forget about it. So we've got to, we've got to get a handle on that. And that is absolutely critical. We know that's a crisis. So the best thing I can think of is blockchain by far, because even if you do ballots and stuff like that, we know ballots mm-hmm. can be um, you know, manipulated and printed out and so on. So that's critical. Decentralization, we can decentralize our power grids, our water sewage treatment plants, our water treatment plants. Um, absolutely, you know, we're using zeros and ones in a computer for our dollars, you know, and, and we've got, of course, a fiat currency, but the truth of the matter is I started a local time bank here uh, seven years ago called Our Nevada County, H-O-U-R, Our Nevada County. And, and literally, I keep an accounting of kindness, kindness. And by keeping an accounting of kindness, that accounting turns it into a global currency. There's over 40 countries that use time banking. And what people don't tell you is that all you need to do is make the decision, like, what are we going to base our our asset on, right? And what people don't realize too, and this was a game changer, this is a paradigm shifter for me when I started this time bank, is that I found out that the European witch hunt lasted for 300 years. And the European witch hunt, all of their local economies were based upon the witch hunt the local magistrate, the local witch hunter, the one who started the fire, right? The one who hung them, right? The one who prosecuted them. I mean, local economies were built upon the witch hunt. That's how they fueled their economies. That's how they made a living. If we can make a living off the witch hunt, why can't we make a living and build local economies based upon kindness? Whoever tells you that, whoever says to you that's even possible. Here, here. I, I couldn't agree more. And I know Bear, uh, how's your internet doing over there, Bear? Um, it's a bummer. He's well, on you, satellite. You tell me. Yeah, um, uh, stop me if it's too bad. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So, uh, Renette, this is so wonderful because, uh, you know, first off, just bringing in the fact that the Constitution was modeled on uh, Native American uh, you know, organization and understanding. I tell that story quite a bit. People are amazed and don't even believe it when I tell them that, because of course we're trying to demonize everything about this country and throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and of course, the true role of government originally was to be a curator of all the talents out there, you know, within the collective culture. And the fact is also a lot of us already are doing exactly what you're talking about now. You know, here at our farm, uh, you know, we, we grow our own food, we grow our own medicine, we make our own medicine, we're, um, you know, gathering with other people that do the same thing in every location. We're sharing ideas. We have free energy devices. Uh, We have all the solutions, of course, but government to this point has been in the uh, explicit role of preventing us all from getting together and not only doing that, but gaslighting us so that we think that nobody else out there is doing it. So of course, what you're doing is, uh, you know, the, the, the true, um, you know, just return to indigenous cultures. And, you know, as we talk a lot about too, all of us are from indigenous cultures, but uh, as people came to this country, I think a lot of the, that was uh, thrown by the wayside and forgotten. So we're all getting back to our roots. We're finding that all indigenous cultures have, uh, you know, mostly in common and and not otherwise. So um, yeah, just wonderful. So um we'll be following closely as far as uh, what you're up to there and what other resources do you have where people can tune in and just monitor the progress and join and actually support you. Right. 
So there's a couple different things. Um, I do have a, a, my own personal website I've had for a few years called thefoghornexpress.com. So when this big announcement is made and so on, we'll be feeding that information into that website. Uh, I do feed in also some of my, my interviews that I do as well, thefoghornexpress.com. Um, there is a website right now that we just have a placeholder called uh, Wake the Bear CA for California, wakethebearca.com. We'll be going live next week with the, uh, the whole entire campaign. And those are probably the two best places to actually go. So um, in fact, if you go to wakethebearca.com, if you hit the little here button, you know, you'll, you can send off an email. That'll go to me directly, actually. And, uh, and then we'll get you into our, into our database and we'll start sending you newsletters and so on. Um, and that's the best way for right now. And it's just, uh, you know, what's really interesting is that um, what we're able to do today was not available to us a year and a half ago. This, we, are, we are at a precipice, we are at a crossroads, but I have to tell you in this last year, I've seen more, more uh, community activism than I've ever seen my whole entire life you know, combined where people have actually pivoted. They started their own private membership association, their own organic store uh, that requires facial nudity, um, a, a school, right, that's mask-free and it's really about you know, teaching kids what they really need to learn. Um, and uh, we've also had people running for political positions that had not before. We have someone who actually started a newspaper called the COVID Times. Um, you know, so these, these are people who would not have done it before, right? If you, if you, it's like, again, when I'm on that bank of the river and someone said, Renette, you have to do all these things in order to get from here to the other side. I'd be like, I can't do that. That's too much. It's impossible. But when these individuals were faced with the challenge of do or die, they all rose to the occasion and they weren't waiting for permission. They weren't for waiting for the city or somebody to get, tell them, you know, give them the thumbs up. They weren't waiting, you know, get my board together and get my approval and this and that. They're like, no, 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 we're going to pivot. We're going to find a different way. And they just jumped. They did it. That is what COVID has given us. Right? That, is the, that is the silver lining. And we now, for the first time, this is why it's imperative that we actually all jump in to action. For the first time ever, we actually have the ability to change government as we know it and to actually bring back true representation that we have not had for generations. This is the moment. Mm -hmm. And this is the moment to actually really leap in the net will appear, right? This is the moment to leap and just have faith. Have faith. Like I did when I crossed Alaska, when I, when I would go and do this trip, it was absolutely astounding to me that I was going out there, putting my life on the line. And at the very moment that I needed something, the trapper's cabin would appear and I have a 10 day trapper's boot camp. Oh, I don't know how I'm gonna cross Alaska. And right there, right before my door is this little canoe melting under the snowbank. Oh, right when I had to figure out what was I gonna do? How do I, oh, there's a wolf pack chasing me and there's a, a, a full moon in a, in a, you know, the, the, the um, Northern lights and a sunrise all starting at the same time to inspire me to continue on. That's how, that's how this existence works. When you say, I'm going to meet you halfway, life, life meets you back. It's there. It's like, oh, you're meeting me halfway. That opens the door. Come on through. And if you aren't able, you're not willing to knock on that door. Life isn't going to, isn't going to be willing to open it. That's what faith is. And I know from my own personal experience, it has happened over and over and over again. And it happened when I, when I stepped off that city council, I cried. I cried for days because I'm like, I'm abandoning my town. I feel like I, this is, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, but I have to do this. I don't even know what I'm doing, but I, I have to do this and I'm going to have to let go, right? Step down in order to step up. And as soon as I did that, 
once I made that decision, before I even made the announcement, the doors just started to swing open. Energetically, the decision was made on a different level and the doors began to swing open. That's what faith is. And you can sit there and say, well, I've never done this before. That's okay. I've never done anything else before. So what? That doesn't mean anything. That is the hero's journey to a team. Our Republic. (laughs) Go ahead, Bear. Yeah. And our Republic was an experiment from the start. And we knew we'd be winging it from the start. And so here we are. The only thing different about us, uh, unlike, say, a single indigenous culture, you know, that that uh, we sought to help us organize the first constitution, um, we have a very multicultural uh, diversity from all over the world. So there's there's a few more moving parts to consider, and and I think uh, I I'm right with you. We're we're ready to do it. And uh, the only thing is we have to get these other pieces out of our way. Well, actually, we don't even have to do that. We just have to do what we know how to do. And they've already made themselves obsolete. Um, Renette, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, We're going to be behind you 100% here. We hope to see you up in our neck of the woods someday. And if not, we'll see you down where you live there. And uh, any other final parting words? I think you summed up everything perfect already, but anything else that you'd like to say? You know, I, I, this just, I just one little brief thing, and that is on this, uh, the very end of this contract with Californians, we have this Latin saying, ad astra per aspera, ad astra, astra per aspera, which means uh, through adversity to the stars. And uh, we're going to, we're going to end up in the stars. We're going to make it there. And this is, this is how it has to be. We have to be challenged in order to do it but we're gonna end up there. So I wanna thank both of you for, for allowing me this, this wonderful opportunity to speak to the people, speak to you and get the word out. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Renette. Thank you. And thank everybody for listening. I'm sorry if I didn't get to your questions. We just wanted to, she had a, Renette has a lot to get out here and maybe we can have you on again in the near future. Um, and if you can hold on, I'd love to talk to you about this event we have, in, we have coming up. Maybe it's kind of close to you. Maybe you could come speak to 600 awake freedom lovers. Love so um, let's talk about that uh, offline. But hey, everybody, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it was such a pleasure <clears throat> to have you on, Renette. And um, if you guys enjoy this, please give us a like, a share, share with your family and friends, get this information out. It really, that's how it works, right? It's the network effect, you know, inspiring people through action. Then they can say, hey, I can go do this myself. I can, you know, that's why we always say, get your hands dirty, start a garden. You know, it's a simple act as that will start to propel you into this whole new life adventure. And it's so important to do right now more than ever. So thanks, guys. Um, we'll see you uh, next week for uh, or actually we might be taking off next week for AlphaCast because I'll be headed up to the event. But uh, we've got Tom Barnett lined up next month and working on some other exciting guests. So uh, just stay in touch with us on Telegram. We love you. Get outside, go for a hike, get your hands dirty, and we'll see you soon. Cheers. Thank you.